with the Marine Corps. I went into it in June, I believe, of 44, and I was mustered out, discharged, and whatever you want to call it, long in the latter part of October, the first part of November of 1945. Now, on the day of Pearl Harbor, I was building my home up on Caravan Circle. So on a Sunday morning, as well I remember, and uh, I did had no radio up there, and I knew nothing about this situation at all till I got home for lunch on that day. I think I was living on Alta Vista Street in South Austin in Travis Heights. I came home around noon to lunch, and when I did, that's the radios were uh, blaring forth what had happened, and the newspapers were out, and the telephones were ringing, and my mother was over at my home. I was married at that I was about 36 or 37, and had three sons, and uh, I was beyond any draft age, but uh, uh, my mother, uh, she thought I ought to do something about it. So she said, Emmett, what are you going to do about this? Well, uh, I, I felt like I wanted to do something, too, because I had three boys to fight for, if there's any fighting to be done. And so uh, I set about trying to learn the Morse code and uh, make myself fit in some manner to join, join one of the armed forces and even try to get in the FBI. Well, I wrestled around until uh, it must have been in the, the uh, uh, first part of January of 1944. Well, I learned about the... Uh, the, the Marine, uh, Marines were expanding the Air Corps and they were going to have some ground officers and that I might be fit for such, uh, such a uh, service there. Then we, when the maneuver was over and we got our diploma, we were allowed a, a little time off. And so I got to come home for a few days to find out where they were going to send me for further training. And uh, I caught a I caught a train into St. Louis, and then I caught a plane from St. Louis down to, to Dallas, and from Dallas I caught a train on in. And I remember that when I got to the uh, Dallas, uh, or it might have been Fort Worth, but anyway, I got to the to the depot there, and I was going up the steps to the, at the, in the depot to get on the train, and uh, there were, of course, the military personnel were just thick all, all over the depot. And I had my Marine uniform on, and there were three or four little old boys, about teenagers, and uh, all the officers and, that were there, and some of them had medals all over them. I had these ribbons all over them. I was just fresh out of boot camp. But I attracted more attention, and these little boys followed me to see this Marine. They could picture me being the one that just had won the war in Guadalcanal and all this, that, and the other. But it gave you a real feeling of pride to know that your uniform stood out among all the rest of them just because you were a Marine. Then when I got home, well, uh, I had the uh, Emmett and was uh, just a teenager, and Gilbert was just two years behind him, and little old Polk was about three years old. And I had been writing them about all these maneuvers and things, and they couldn't wait for their daddy to come home and, and show them how to do these things. They were all going to be Marines. And so uh, I, I was in fine shape, and so we'd get out and we'd creep and crawl around, run around on our bellies all through the, the yard there. And after I'd been there about two or three days, little Polk kind of warmed up to me. He he didn't remember me too well. He, he wasn't old enough when I left to know what a daddy was, and when he, after two or three days, and, and he had had some fun with us there, well, he just out of the blue sky one day said, 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 I like you, and I'll never forget that, because I did want them all to like me a little bit. They fled over there west of our big hill, uh, where the Wilsons built, Burton Wilsons built, and that's before they came up there, well, there was a tree there, and that was Emmett's hunting ground. He had a big flat there, and he had him a tree house. And down where Old Stonehenge is, a great big oak tree, and, and uh, 
uh, Ray Cobbins' yard now, there's still a deer stand in it, and that was Gilbert's stand. Little Polk was too little then to have him a stand, but each of the boys had him a, a deer stand right there close to our house. Now, I remember there was a, well, of course, that was all open land up in there then, no, no fences in there, and the people in the, around the community, I had to kind of wean them off of hunting up there. The short boys and the Teagues and the rest of them, I'd let them hunt, get rock and get cedars, I'd like that, and for that purpose, they, they would never hunt, and, Pierce boys was the same way, except unless I told them to or they asked me to. But to some of these others is off down in uh, the south side of the Cave Road. They just gonna were not going to be stopped and told what they had to do on this land over there just because I owned it. There's one old man that had one arm, and he'd come over there hunting quite a little bit, and he was a treasure hunter that would try to dig up treasure over there with one arm. But he and another fellow come over there one day, and I caught them down there on stone, old Stone Age right in that area, and I told them, I said, the boys all been hunting on my land a long time and it's all right I can't stop you from it at all I don't want to I want you to have a good time but I said now mind you I've got two kids one about 10 one about 12 years old and they're not too smart about what they shoot at and they're up in these trees around here and they're liable to shoot it and then come by but don't y'all let that bother you now you just come on over here and hunt when you want to well uh, they didn't come over anymore because they want to do the hunting they don't want to be the hunted of course, the little boys had all the hunting territory they needed. They was living on a thousand or fifteen hundred acres of land, and and they were teenagers, little fellows, about nine or ten years old. And and uh, Emmett Jr. had his rifle. I had them a rifle as soon as they was big enough to tote one. And he would uh, uh, leave the house and go all the way back up to the west end of our pasture on the land back in the in the northwest corner of the uh, of the uh, Chambers Survey, nearly where the St. Stephen's Road is. Now to do his hunting walk a mile or so, and then he'd come back home for lunch and then go back to the west end of the pasture. Sometimes he'd use the pickup to go all the way around by the Teague land and go in the Roy Ranch to get over there. And the best hunting we had was right there around the house. We had deer all around there, but they'd come up in the yard quite often. And I'll tell about Emmett shooting one in the front yard one day, but he'd go off up there. Well, little Gilbert was not quite big enough to have a rifle, so he got a bow and arrow one Christmas, and he decided his idea of hunting would be go down on the the back end, the west end of the hill, our hill, which is where John Watson now lives. And he sat up on the bluff there, overlooking the, the terrain there. There wasn't any road back there then, but little Gilbert went down there and with his boy and there, and sure enough, a deer come walking out right in front of him, and he shot his arrow and, at the deer and then took out and run home fast as he could before the deer could get a hold of him. But he saw a deer, and Emmett Jr. didn't. I believe Gilbert was... Uh, Emmett didn't have luck on his shooting as much as Polk and Gilbert. Gilbert never missed one, and I don't think Polk ever missed one. Emmett to shoot once in a while and bring them down, but he wouldn't bring the deer home. About that season of their lives, when they were about, I believe Gilbert was eight and Emmett was ten, well, Red Bogus and I had a, an invitation to come down on Dolly Boy's, Boyette's ranch at Tilden, Texas, right out of Tilden. Dolly was a good friend of ours then. He was on the prison commission, and... and uh, uh, we we liked him, and my Dolly, Dolly was running cattle down there, so we took out in my car and took the two little boys with us. It's the first uh, hunting trip that they were going to have with uh, with the big folks, and so little Gilbert didn't have a gun, and I let Emmett have the thirty thirty, and and I had a thirty thirty, and and of course I don't know what kind of red had, but I also took a, a little double barrel twenty gauge that I'd had for years, and so we could do some quail hunting too, and so. Uh, we got down to Tilden just about dark, and it was about 10 miles out to the to the pasture uh, that we was going to hunt in, and we had all the directions how to get there and the little cabin we was going to stay in. Well, we started driving out, and we got through the pasture gate, and, 
and uh, Red was driving, I believe, and uh, he noticed a, a big snake right in the middle of the road. And we stopped long enough to get out. The snake was dead, but it was a rattlesnake. And it must have been about seven feet long, and it was big as my forearm. It's the biggest snake I ever saw in my life. It just run cool chilled up and down your spine. And I got to thinking about my little kids being out in the brush with a uh, 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 thing like that running wild, and it didn't make me feel good. Well, anyway, we went on down and got to the cabin, and Red and I got outside, and we put up our little old rack to cook on, and we was cooking our supper, and, and uh, Emmett Jr. and Gilbert fixed their cots inside their little old house, and we had our little snack for the supper, and we was, we was ready to go hunting. And the two little boys were in there while Red and I was out just talking at, uh, around the fire, and they were in there talking about all the wild things that they was going to do the next day. And all of a sudden, here come a whole pack of coyotes running down the fence row close to where our cabin was. And it must have been eight or ten of them, and of course, they can make a pretty good racket when they're chasing rabbits at night. And, and uh, all of a sudden, the two little boys got very quiet. And the coyotes went on by within 50 yards of us, just making an awful racket. And Emmy Jr. said, Daddy, said, what was that? And uh, I said, those are coyotes. Well, that's the first time those little boys had ever heard coyotes. And they knew with all that racket and going on that they were right in the middle of the hunting oasis. And so they just fell asleep immediately. Well, the next morning we got up and I still had that rattlesnake on my mind. And I told Red, I said, I don't want either one of us to be hurt by something like that out here. Now, let's be real careful. So he decided he'd take Emmett Jr. with him, go one direction, and I was going to walk down the road. I was going to stay on the road after daylight anyhow and wasn't going to get far off of it at any time where I couldn't see where I was going to step. And so uh, uh, they went off, and I took Gilbert, and we had the double-barrel shotgun, that old 20-gauge, uh, loaded with buckshot. I figured if we got a chance to shoot a deer, well, uh, I'd let Gilbert take a shot with a buckshot, uh, although he had never shot the, the shotgun before. I, I'd explain it to him in a, in a minute, I figured, and he'd know how to do it. He'd, he'd uh, seen guns, had air guns and little rifles, and so he and I started one way and went down the road, and we got down... I wouldn't say over 200 yards from the house because it wasn't daylight yet and I wasn't going to walk uh, anywhere until it got daylight. So we sat down there till daylight and at daylight I walked off in the brush about 10 or 15 feet. Uh, not in the brush, it was in the opening there, but we got behind some little mesquite trees and I thought that would be uh, enough to give Gilbert an experience of hunting and whether we saw anything or not. He had the double barrel and I was carrying the, the, uh, my rifle and uh, I also had some bird shots so that in case we run across a cub or quail, and I could switch uh, from buckshot to, to birdshot in the uh, 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 20 gauge and we'd shoot some birds. So we squatted down for about 10 minutes, and all of a sudden I noticed out there about 50 feet from me a, a couple of does uh, deer. And I wanted him to see a deer anyhow. And the little fellow was kind of sitting back of me, and he had this gun in his hand. And uh, I, I said, Yeah, but, and whispered to him, I said, Look over here, and you'll you'll see some deer now. Well, he started his head twisting over to my left where where he could see. I was standing to his right at the time, or sitting at his right and on my haunches. And, and so he started his head around. He got about halfway, and he stopped. And I got a hold of the back of his head, and I twisted it a little more further to his left. And I said, look where I said, you can see some deer. Well, he said, well, Daddy, I see two of them with buck, with horns on them right out there while I'm looking. Well, I hadn't uh, looked back that direction, and I looked back there, and there were the two bucks. Well, I'd made a deal with Gilbert to let him have the first shot. But as soon as I saw these deer, it became very important that we get one, and I took buck fever, and so I reneged on my promise to him. 
So I kind of got up where without making any noise or any motion, and I got my 30-30 to my shoulder, and, and I fired at one of these uh, bucks and, and killed it. It fell down. I had a, a close shot, and just as I pulled my trigger, I heard something go off out to my left and heard some, just felt some wind go by my left arm. And by the time I could look around, little old Gilbert was already laying on his back on the ground, and his nose was bleeding, and the rifle of the shotgun had fallen out of his hands. But what he had done in the excitement, and I guess he had buck fever too, but he had gotten up, and, and while I was shooting my deer, he had got this old 20-gauge uh, double barrel up, and he couldn't get it. Uh, he was too little to get the, the, the butt of it up against his shoulder. He had to just clamp his arm down around the butt of it, and he put his nose right up against the flicker where you open the, the, the breech, and he pulled both triggers, and uh, shooting at uh, the same bunch that I shoot now. Well, it just scared the living gizzard out of me. I didn't know what the devil to do, and I gave him a scolding, but I run out to, to, to get the deer that I know I had knocked down, and so I, I, I got it kind of strung up a little bit and gutted. Of course, Emmett and my Red Boggers were just about 300 yards from us, and uh, we had about four or five shots take place over there, and so they come walking over the wood, and they called to us and said, it's coming, and so we got over there. I had my deer strung up. And Red said, there's bound to be another deer here. There's just too much shooting going on for y'all just to got this one deer. Well, he walked over about 10 feet from where mine was, and there was one that Gilbert had shot. He'd pulled both barrels, that old uh, double barrel, and, and he had buckshot all the way from that uh, eyeballs to the, to, the, to the tail of that deer. He'd shot it, and it hit it all over, and of course the deer fell dead before I could see the thing. And so there we had two deer. And uh, little Emmett was just, oh, he was awful uh, upset. He, uh, he was two years older than Gilbert, and Gilbert had killed a deer, and he hadn't killed one yet. And he wanted to get one now. He didn't want to wait for a little while. Well, as fortune would have it, Emmett didn't get a shot that day, and he didn't get one. And on that trip, when we started home, well, Gilbert was so proud of himself. that he, he did, I'd, t- I'd cost him against bragging and, and making Emmett Jr. feel bad, but all Gilbert had to do was to just look at Emmett and grin. And Emmett had just go into a frenzy because he had been caught short and Gilbert had killed a deer before he had. I actually don't think Gilbert ever killed another deer in his lifetime. But he has that one mounted and, and he has pictures of it. Emmett Jr. has killed just dozens of them, of course, and that's been his one of his recreations in his lifetime, his hunting, and that's what he's doing right now. Then uh, when Little Pope got a little bigger, uh, I brought him a 300 Savage. And I guess he must have been about eight or nine or ten years old. But anyway, the first three times he fired that savage, he got three bucks. There was one instance in my immediate family that I think should be noted. That was in 1951. My son, Emmett Jr., had... uh, been with the Marines in North Korea in that battle and just got out alive in November and December of 1950 and he'd come home and gotten home and during the deer season of 1951. At that time we were uh, claiming and had possession of all the land where along, along the El Toro Canyon Road north of Bee Creek is now. The only way to get over to that was to go up Westlake Drive and come in on the north end where El Toro Canyon comes into Westlake Drive now and we had no fences particularly up there, but we had been policing that land and keeping everybody off of it. Well, one Sunday during the deer season, Emmy Jr. was home from Quantico on a furlough, and he was out hunting on the west end of the pasture up on uh, the upper end of Bee Creek, and 
And uh, I was off up, uh, I went up West Lake Drive and went on back into my pasture off up there. Along about 11 o'clock, I run into uh, four hunters, and uh, they had rifles, and they were hunting on what I thought was my land, and I told them so. One of them was a surveyor named Stubby, and as far as I need to say about this. And so I told him he couldn't hunt up there, that was, that was my land, he'd have to leave. So he said he'd tell the boys that were with him to get in their car when they come back, and they would go on off and leave. So it was about lunchtime, and I got in my pickup and drove on back way around the long way around West Lake Drive and come on down and came up when I was living on 900 Redbud Trail at that time on the hill up there. Well, I got home, Emmett Jr. had come in from his hunt, and I told him that I'd found these four hunters up there, and he said, well, Daddy, you know, that's our land, and they have no business hunting there. I think we better go back up and, and be sure that they're gone. So he takes his rifle. I left mine at the house, and we drove back up there to see if old Stubby and the other boys were there, and so we drove down through the brush, which was about a half a mile down there, just a little piece uh, west of where El Toro Canyon is now, but it's just a, a cedar road in through there, and and I was talking to Stubby, and he said he was just waiting for the boys. He hadn't hunted anymore, and he wasn't going to have any trouble. And the boys came up just about the time we got there. And they were standing on the side of the road, and we heard another car coming up through the brush off down in the lower part of the land there. And, and uh, as they come up, I noticed there's an old boy named Jack. I won't say his last name, but there were four men in the front seat of a pickup. And all of them had the deer rifles, and they had been hunting. And this boy, Jack, had uh, been the one that uh, held Mr. Everett Looney's up and took his pants off and took a key away from his away from him to get in his gate back over where the Roy Ranch is located now. And I had uh, set in the back of my mind that he wasn't going to do me that way if he ever came on my ranch. And there he was with three men besides him with rifles. And then we had Stumpy and his three companions with rifles on my right-hand side. And I was out of the car, my pickup, and so was Emmett. And we had the roadblock to where Jack and his boys couldn't come on through and so I walked up in front and I said I want to see your hunting license and Jack says to the man that, uh, on the, uh, the opposite side of the driver he said you don't have to show him your hunting license he ain't no damn game warden so I picked up a rock and I was getting a little hot about that time felt like I had the right to talk like I pleased on my own land and so I was drawn back like going to throw the rock through the windshield and I th- saw uh, Old uh, Jack started to, he opened up the door on his side of the car and like he's going to get out. And he had his rifle in his hand, and, and uh, old Stubby was uh, right next to me, and he got to jumping up and down. He said, don't, don't, don't shoot him, don't shoot him. And I thought, well, I don't have anything to shoot him with. I thought he's talking about me. And uh, I noticed Jack's eyes getting a little big, and he made a, uh, a little move to go back into the car, and he kind of made got apologetic for some reason. And I looked around, and, there was Emmett Jr. with his deer rifle up on his shoulder and aiming right straight at old Jack's head. And it wasn't 10 feet off. And uh, So they said they'd go leave if we'd back up and let them go and they'd, they'd, we wouldn't have any more trouble with us. So I had Emmett back there. Oh, I got in the car and backed up because Emmett had the rifle and he held it out there. And uh, we let their two pickups go and they all eight of the men got in the car and left. Well, we were going to follow them out to be sure they got off our land. And so... Uh, we got, uh, I asked Emmett right then, I said, son, what would you going to do? He said, daddy, I figured I could kill every one of those four men before they got out of that pickup and got the rifle leveled off at me. Well, I had a picture in my mind of just like four chickens with their heads cut off jumping around on that ground, and that wasn't my idea of a, a nice Sunday day. And so, uh, and about 30 minutes after we got home, I got a call from Judge McBee, the Justice of Peace. 
And he said, Emmett, Jack's down here, and he mentioned his last name, and he wants to file a complaint against your son for assault with intent to murder. And I said, well, now, Judge, he's damn sure right. I said, if those boys had gotten out of that car about an hour ago out here at my place, every damn one would have been dead right now. Well, nothing ever come of it anyway. However, I did follow that up by filing a, a suit in the district court, Judge Gardner's court, to enjoin these boys and Jack in particular from coming back on our land. I know what he'd been doing. He'd been throwing cattle back in there, and it's all open land. And then if uh, I had my doubts about whether they were his cattle or not, but anyway, they, they were roaming over in there. And so we had an injunction to keep him from coming on our land anymore. And, and I had to tell him in the courtroom, and we, uh, John Colfer represented me in the case, and, and we had a hearing within about a week after this incident. And, and uh, Jack got on the witness stand and testified, and he said, that big old boy of Emmett's leveled off on me, but I knew what he's talking about, that big old barrel that he was looking at instead of the big old boy because Emmett Jr. was uh, uh, oh, 20 pounds lighter than this boy. But Emmett had had a, quite an experience in Korea the year before, and he'd had to kill a whole lot of men looking down his rifle barrel in order to get home alive, which he had done, I'm sure, and he, he doesn't talk about it, but I'm sure he did. Well, we got the injunction, and we told Jack from in the courtroom that if we ever saw him out there again, that we would presume he was out there for the purpose of killing us, and if we got the first shot, then he wasn't going to get a chance to shoot at us. And so we had no more trouble about that. And Emmett Jr. won that land by limitations, which was just about as open and hostile and adverse as, as, a, as a man can be in the, in the claiming of land, the, the things that I have described to you. Of course, under the 10-year statute of limitations of adverse possession, uh, you have to do some things like that, and it's almost the same thing that like old Judge... I mean, old General Jeb Stewart said during the Civil War, said the way he uh, won his cavalry battles was that he always got there firstest with the mostest men. Now, here in Texas, when you get title under the 10-year statute of limitation, you get there firstest and stay there latest with the most hostile men, and that's what we had to do. Are in the hill, that east tree.